Welcome, Prep and Rest listeners. Thank you for tuning in again. Um, it's Stark Void today. We're doing a solo cast adventure with our guest. Um, now, our guest is actually gone. Today, we actually have someone that I kind of assimilate with, too. He's a, he's a film star, and he's had an extensive career in both, you know, confidence in speaking, so I, there's a lot we can t- partake to this, and so I'm going to let you introduce himself now. His, his name is Taylor Ford. So how are you doing, Taylor? Oh, I'm doing really, really good, and uh, yeah, thank you, first of all, for having me on Prefs and Refs. I'm, I'm looking forward to it, even more so being able to do a, a solo conversation with you, Dark Boy. That's, uh, that's pretty cool, too, you know? I was looking forward to chatting with Z, but hey, if you and I can have some one-on-one, that'll be great. But I guess as far as uh, an introduction goes, it's, uh, you know, what can I say about me? I'm a father, a husband, a son, a performer, former child actor, now entrepreneur, best-selling author, lover of fine beaches, and in and a purveyor of uh, fine chocolate when I can get my hands on it. So, you know, those are all those things. The qualities of a refined yeah, and actually, I I do like to think of as an actor, right? Uh, and everyone thinks acting is just about being able to lie to someone. I'm like, that's not <laughs> entirely true. You have to be able to uh, place yourself in that mental position to express that. And people consider that lying, but like, no. If if for whatever instance you ever felt an emotion and just didn't know how to express yourself, that's when you you know kind of relay into it. So the acting piece, I think, is actually phenomenal. I wasn't much of an actor for myself. I did do drama back in high school because who wouldn't be interested in, you know, learning more about how people interact or see drama in theater. But uh, how how did that, because you started this off at a young age, correct? Yeah, I started uh, started on stage when I was six. And I think it's funny, too, because I've heard that, too, where, you know, uh, acting is is a, a, a... fine art form of lying. And I would actually say that acting is the most purest expression of truth. And the reason I'd say that is anytime we see a performance that is false and we go, Oh, dude's a bad actor. Um, it's usually because they haven't been honest with the audience and they haven't been honest with themselves. Bad acting is lying, but I think good acting is a true expression of what the reality of that moment was. And yes, you're putting on a character. Yes, it may be fictional, but good acting and good performance is entirely grounded in, in truth and recognition of how human behavior actually is. So I would say that it's one of the finest expressions that we have as a society to pull back the veil of truth on, on how we see the world. I like that. Um, especially true because people don't understand that they're probably acting on an everyday basis, you know, like you, the way you act in front of coworkers versus how you act in friends or with other family members or even with yourself, right? Cause sometimes you don't have the energy to be all of those faces at the same time. And it's people just don't realize that that's just at a higher scale, at a level that everyone else can enjoy. And that's what makes it entertaining. Um, but yeah, no, I, I do appreciate that you know, acting is something that is valued more nowadays. I imagine being back in like the 1800s and not being able to get to a good movie just because Marvel wasn't existing, you know, that'd be terrible. Uh, well, and it's funny because even back, um, you know, acting is one of the oldest professions. Um, 
I think, uh, second only to prostitution, according to most. So, and there are some that would argue that, uh, that acting is equivalent to prostitution because you're selling yourself out to other people. But I know that, um, you know, that was one of the earliest forms of social commentary. Like you look at why some of the works of Shakespeare and some of all of the works of Shakespeare have lasted the, the test of time, you know, you're, we're looking at a 400 year history of, of theater there. It's because it was the original social commentary. People would put on performance and play to express ideas, to talk about the times that they were at. And it was a form of entertainment going back, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of years. You look at the, the Roman plays and the Parthenon and people coming and gathering to be entertained and to be informed at the same time. Performance in theater is how that has been done for eons, not just centuries. And so I think it, it's, you know, it's the original news information, uh, especially because I think in modern society, we take it, uh, take it for granted the literacy levels that we have in the world. And you got to remember, you don't even have to go back 200 years and half the people couldn't read or write. You go back further than that. And it's, you know, it was a privileged few uh, priests with great knowledge who were able to read and write uh, our language. Everybody else spoke it. And so uh, performance was that, that way of uh, informing the masses of what was going on whether that was, you know, propaganda or whether that was trying to enlighten and bring truth forward uh, it can be debated, but it was still, it's the, still the original entertainment medium is public oration and speaking and performance. And, and honestly, it's good to see that, that, like, we understand that there's a piece of that that was kind of tied into human culture and its nature, because again, it, we see acting as a, like a snap, a quick, quick snap of what time was at, um, but we see it in nature all the time, right? When birds are trying to mate, they're trying to, you know, ex expose themselves in a different light. You know, they're trying to show out more than they really are. Um, and it's all, all over nature, right? We have, if you if you feel like acting is deceitful, then we can't, you know, we must blame camouflage for the way, you know, some birds act so that they don't get attacked by prey or predators, sorry. Um, but like I said, acting is, I think, a very phenomenal thing. I think everyone should take a look into that. It helps, you know, refine your palate as to what good entertainment well, it also helps. I mean, honestly, one of the best leadership skills anybody can develop is the ability to public speak. And a lot of public speaking is putting on a performance. And I wouldn't, again, I wouldn't want somebody to lie to their audience or lie about who they are, but good public presentations have an element of performance. And again, a lot of a good performance is grounded in truth. So it's coming forward and being able to speak honestly from your heart, from your soul, uh, ground that performance in reality and bring forward a, a thought pattern. So, um, you know, one of the first things that I do when I'm working with my uh, executive clients and my, my private clients is I get them to do uh, an improv class. You know, and they're like, "What? Why am I doing this?" I'm like, "Well, trust me. If you ever, if you've had any kind of comfort zone issues, if you're afraid of public speaking or you're more afraid of public judgment, then this is going to be 
This is going to be that full immersion. And when you come out of it, there will be no reason for you to not go and stand prepared in front of a boardroom when you are forced to go unprepared in front of naturally, naturally funny people. And so I make them take uh, a theater sports or improv class. And then I also make them go and do karaoke because if you can succeed or fail at karaoke, if you can get up on stage and, and get through a song, you can, you can get through, you know, a boardroom presentation. I like that. I like how you were able to tie, you know, something of a past experience of like acting. Something that's, you know, uh, sorry, stand time true and implement it into the mindset of how it helps enterprise. Cause I, like I said, it helps in every other pieces of, of life. So on a, another segue, so you work with businesses to help train in, I'm guessing, you know, public speaking, uh, confidence. Um, I don't know if you've heard, but one of my personal favorite, literature pieces that talk about public speaking is uh, Dale Carnegie. Man, yeah. Yeah. Man was a genius ahead of his time, but every time I reread all his, you know, his books, I'm like, okay, there's some, still some knowledge here that pertains. Uh, I know they've tried to rehash it with more of a modern light so that people are in- interested in it, but the original script on it was still just as good. Um, I don't know if you've read any of them. Oh, yeah. Well, and here's the thing. I mean, there's a reason why you still have a Carnegie Institute that's teaching people how to public speak. And the funny thing is, is uh, a lot of what Carnegie did was modernize for his time information that had been passed down from earlier performance. And and again, this idea that uh, public speaking is new or that there's new things to learn about public speaking, there's not. There's just different spins on old Like you can go again, I can't help but go back to Roman times like we're talking 4000 years ago and Plato and Socrates and uh, standing up and giving or oration like that's we have an oral tradition of passing down information. Um, Homer, you know, didn't write down the Odyssey, he spoke the Odyssey and other people uh, then took that dictation. So we have this um, history of, of knowing what good public speaking looks like, whether it's in the form of entertainment in a play or whether it's in the form of information in the delivery of, of what we would now call a keynote presentation. The, the basics, the standards of doing that haven't changed in eons there are people who do it well and there are people who are learning to do it well <laughs> you know and, and there's and it, everything in between that and like even my book is is absolutely nothing new and some in fact some of the points that i make from it i've taken from the 4h club when i was in 4h which took it from carnegie's information carnegie took that from other sources so like the the concepts are not new it's just this is the spin that I can put on it where Carnegie was, you know, obviously a Titan of business at the turn of the 19th century, 20th century, I guess, 1900s. Um, The, you know, my spin on it is, Hey, I've been a child actor. I've been performing for 36 years. This is what I know. This is why I'm good at public speaking. Cause this is what I have learned from my experience. Carnegie took it from a business perspective. I'm taking it from a performance and arts perspective. Somebody else may be taking it from a totally different perspective. I mean, you look at Brian Tracy, he has a really good program on public speaking and he started out in realty. So like you take your spin for how it is, 
we can all come to these skill sets from a, from a different viewpoint, but we still as an audience know when somebody's delivery and performance rings true or when it rings false. And that's really the key is getting good at making your delivery ring true. So my next question to you is if we're going to have two individuals, one that's just starting in public speaking, you know, day one, they took your course, they're starting the, you know, to get their feet wet in their own discourse in life compared to the guy who's a veteran who does keynote speech speeches for like Apple or Amazon, whatever the you know, top end. What do you think the difference is between the first guy, the starting level to the veteran? What, what do you think is a defining quality that you learn as a public speaker? Experience that, that really it's just, it's the, the number of times you've done it. And here's the thing too. Like I know some, very well-paid keynote present uh, presenters who are not that good. <laughs> they, they, they've got a name, they've built a reputation for them. Maybe there was a time where they were good, but they're, they're, they're not, they're not everything that you'd want. And I know some people who are just starting, who never even had a break, you know, or they've, they've only done one or two presentations that are phenomenal. And it's a shame that the world doesn't know their name yet but it is a, a, a doesn't know their name yet. So I think the first thing, whether you start when you're starting out is to recognize where you're at, right? Like if I, if I want to get to a destination, it's not good enough to know where I want to get to, right? If I'm trying to plug something into my GPS, the first thing it says is where do you want to start from? Then ask where you want to go. Where are you starting from? right? We put in our beginning point before we put in our destination. And I think that's where most people uh, make their first mistake is they know that they want to get here. Like I want to be on this stage. I want to do this thing. I want to make this amount of money presenting or acting or whatever it is that you want to do in business. I want to be here. These, this is my goal. Okay, great. Where are you at now? And being honest about that, like, you know, so much sometimes, and it can go both ways. I know people who have an inflated sense of self and they think they're further ahead than what they actually are. And I know people who have a very deflated sense of self who are actually further along than they give themselves credit for. So it's, it's doing that real honest analysis of where am I truly at right now? So that when you plug in your destination, that the waypoints add up as opposed to starting out uh, having a false start somewhere that you're not, you're not really. And then you're detouring, detouring through some quagmire swamp, right? Like you get bogged down if you're not honest with where your starting point is. So I think the people who do it very rapidly, who, who see that quote unquote overnight success had a incredible grounded sense of self and what, what they could and could not bring to the table. And they didn't try to do more, than they were able to and never promised more than they could deliver. And those people gain a reputation very fast of being reliable and trustworthy. And I think that's the, especially in this business uh, of speaking because it's information delivery and somebody is bringing you on very like what you're doing right now, right? You guys have brought me on to prefs and refs based on a, a mutual communication and an understanding that I'm going to come on and I'm going to deliver value to your audience. 
that is the agreement that I come and give value. And if that value isn't delivered, I haven't fulfilled my promise. And so I need to be very, very upfront about what it is that I can bring to the table so that there isn't that misunderstanding and that disappointment. Because at the end of the day, it has nothing to do with what I say. It has nothing to do with what you say, Dark Void. It has everything to do with how your audience in the end is served and perceives the conversation that you and I have had. And if you and I are not serving that audience, particularly if I am not uh, adding to the conversation that you guys could have on your own, then I have not fulfilled my promise. And that's really the the good people in this industry recognize that, understand that, and are consistently and constantly delivering value to somebody else's audience. And that's what brings them and makes them succeed. And that's a good point because there's people who just stand up and say something without really speaking in terms of actual what is the truth that they're saying. Because again, there's a lot of people that feel like an opinion is a, is a reason to say something. And that, yeah, that's true. Uh, but at the same time, how how much of the, of, the, of the power behind that speaking point do you have? You could be an excellent speaker, but if it just sits there and it dwindles down to, well, that's just an opinion, you didn't really communicate well. You didn't present yourself to a way where it makes sense to be like, okay, it's a new opinion someone else is going to learn. Just hearing it sometimes doesn't make it relevant for others. And that's where I feel yeah. like public speaking really takes a shine. So my next question Well, and I... Th- I think the other side to that is that so many people confuse opinion with fact and, uh, or even, even evidence as fact evidence of something is not fact of something. It is not proof of something. It is an indication of a theory. Right. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're so divisive, uh, particularly in North America, because this, the, this, these issues are not as divisive elsewhere. I know I'm very well traveled. I've been to a lot of different countries in the world. I have a very uh, full passport. Um, you know, one of my favorite things to do is when my passport expires is compare it to the other passports to see how many or how fewer stamps I got in that five-year period. And I, I find it is a very uniquely North American thing, This this expression of of opinion v fact. And I think it, part of it is because, you know, there is this American ideal of individual self-actualization, right. And, and this um, real focus on individual freedoms and individual rights. And there's a confusion on what is a right and what is a freedom and what is a natural law and what is a man law. And, and interpretations of those as well. And so you get this, I think we are this unique combination, particularly on this continent, of, of people who are highly educated, ridiculously over-informed, with platforms to find individuality, and opinion has become blurred with fact. Because all I can speak, what I just said is an opinion. It is not, in fact, fact. It is my view. And yet somebody will agree with me and somebody will disagree with me. And the people who agree with me will then quote me and say, well, Foley said this. And I'll be like, well, yeah, I said that, but it doesn't make it true. It makes it my opinion. 
And I think that is <laughs> where we have really gone off the rails with, uh, you know, public discourse. Totally. Now, here's where I wanted to ask more of your expertise. How does people misunderstanding information affect public speaking, right? Because you have excellent public speakers out there and it feels more and more that they're being picked off as they're going to be on my, ca- my side of the campaign, not yours because of useful. And public speaking is supposed to be a tool. And here in America, I think we both agree that it's not being used correctly. It's still being manipulated to help push aside or information. And I think public speaking is supposed to be a little bit more sincere than that. How would you think that affects people in mass, right? Public speakers taking a point, right? Like celebrities. They may not be public speakers, but they have a huge megaphone. They have a lot, a bigger audience than most people would have. And that's causing these opinions to start, you know, coming out. People are falling into, well, this is what so-and-so said. How do you think public speaking is going to evolve, right, in terms of how people are using it as a tool to politicize people? Which they always have, but now it's getting a little bit more aggressive. Well, so, again, the... I don't know that it is or is not getting more aggressive. What I think there is is a deterioration of boundaries that were unspoken um, and uncrossed previously. And that, and one of the other things too is I, I, so everybody public speaks. Let's just, let's just, get that out of the way. The difference is some people have a larger platform. As you said, some have a very large megaphone and some people don't. And that it's the inequality of who, whose message is heard the loudest. That is really that issue right now, because again, you, you're having, it's this polarization of side. I, one of the things that I find most interesting is why do I have to agree with everything you say? I am not right 100% of the time. If you don't believe me, ask my wife. She will definitely affirm that. You know, I have made errors in my life. I have also evolved and changed my opinions over time. What I say today may not be how I feel tomorrow. So that's the other thing. Why is it something that I believed or thought 10 years ago needs to then be forced on me as an opinion that I had and and a judgment of my character? I think it shows a great character trait. If you can say one thing 10 years ago and look back at it now and say, I recognize the error of my way and show that evolution. Um, And, but still be able to say, look, I believed this thing. That is who I was, but I have changed my understanding because, and I think that shows better growth. And yet so many people are persecuted for that. And this other, this, it's this AB, this binary mentality that has started to develop where you, it has to be this, or this. And again, as a Canadian, I don't understand American politics. I don't understand why you only have two choices. Because frankly, when I'm sitting north of the border, I'm looking down going, well, I wouldn't pick either. 
you know, but it has nothing to do with me. I, that's that's not mine. And what's funny is uh, more choice is not necessarily better either because I had in our most recent um, both civic, provincial, and federal election, this was the first full cycle of all three where I spoiled my ballot. I, as somebody who has the right to vote and recognize the sacrifices that went into my ability to do that, will always vote. But I couldn't support any of the candidates that were running either for my city, <laughs> for my province or state, or, you know, my, my federal, for my country. I just, none of the options that were given to me uh, were appealing, given that I agree with certain parts of platform A, because they make sense to me. And I still agree with certain parts of platform B, but I don't agree fully with either one and not that I ever will, but they, but where I disagreed were so polarizing in that I could not fundamentally at my core support either one um, that I couldn't make a choice. And I think that that is what has been lost in society and where I think uh, to round back to your question, where I think public speaking um, can grow is getting back to proper debate. I was part of the debate team in high school and there are rules of decorum. And I look at what is supposed to be debate um, in you know, the US Senate and the US House in the Canadian Senate and the Canadian House and the in parliament in the UK. And I, you know, you see these C-SPAN things where people are yelling at each other and insulting each other. And that is what politics is. And I think because we have visible leadership who's doing that society in general thinks that that's proper. And if you actually go down to Robert's rules, which all of these things are supposed to be following, uh, that is not proper. That is not actual debate. And I think it is important for us as citizens to start calling out this bad behavior for what it is. It is, it is rude and it is obnoxious. And that is not who I want leading me, regardless of my citizenship or where I, I live. That is not the kind of behavior that I condone. I would never allow my daughter, who is six years old, to speak to another individual the way that we're allowing politicians and what's worse is now political news correspondence to speak to one another. That is not proper. And so I think where uh, public speaking is important is that it's a skill that all of us have. We all speak in public. We all have the ability to have platforms, especially in this day and age where we're, I have an amazing platform because of podcasts. You know, I've, I was on 250 shows last year and the, I, it's incumbent on me to start asking for better. And part of that is you know, you can only control yourself. So I, it's, it's upon me to start doing better myself. And if I can train other people and demand of them their best so that these voices can start to rise and we can start to have civil discourse and discussion as opposed to this unruly and unmanaged behavior. I think it's atrocious. I like that answer. And it's interesting to see that even, you know, other nations still see politics in a similar fashion, right? I, I also do agree. People are acting out of order. They're being a little crass, thinking that that's acceptable. 
and thinking that just because I offended someone, that's a talking point. That's not fair. That's 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 a dirty play. I think if you're going to discuss an actual topic, like bring only the topic at hand, right? Whatever another personal person's personal uh, settings or background, you ignore it. That's not the conversation they're having. The conversation they're having is right in front of you about certain situation. Do not try to muddy the water by adding irrelevant things. Yeah, it could be relevant to you, but is that relevant to the discussion at hand? And I, and I do agree. Public speaking has to change so that people can be like, we're focusing on the topic without being rude, without trying. And again, because people are saying it's not happening, but they're actively trying to assault each other with words. That's not how yeah. speaking is meant to be used. It's supposed to be a tool. It's how we communicate. We're a society that, you know, we thrive on social entertainment and attraction from others. Why are we out there to use any any given time that a conversation is pushed to to you to be you know aggressive? I don't I don't see that happening. Um, like that's one of the reasons why I don't agree with a lot of our politics now. Um, a lot of the things that are supposed to be relevant are slipping away and people don't want to talk about it, but that's because they're so entertained with the, the aggression and the, just the heated arguments on personal attacks. So I, I thank you for pointing that out. And it's, I feel like it is something that just is spreading. across the world. Very and crazy. when was politics supposed to be entertaining? <laughs> like that's, that's, that's the real question there. And, and I think that uh, there has been this blur of uh, political leadership and celebrity. Oh, yeah. especially in the states where the previous president was a celebrity. Yeah, and, then and that was the primary platform on which he ran. This is who I am, and look at the money that I've made doing all of these incredible things. They got shown a shiny coin and thought that was worth something, you know. Um, yeah. You know, I get America still very angry about this. Uh, I know I personally don't feel the happiest or content with that situation. But here's what I do want to tell other people now that are listening. Regardless of political affiliation, do not use, don't follow rules set by someone else just because they said it, you know? Think for yourself objectively. Hey, does this affect me? Does this not affect me? Like just recently I was talking to a friend and I, I spoke to her. I'm like, hey, you know, you're saying a lot of stuff about the people I listen to, but I'm like, have you heard your own people talk? And this is what they've said word for word. They're like, no way. I'm like, yeah. It's not that, you know, a certain affiliation is bad. I'm just saying that not everyone in that affiliation is good. And that's where you really want to be picky because those are the people that represent you, you know. Um, and that's why I, I think politics became a, a different thing altogether now. It's, it used to be about discourse. It used to be about the issue at hand. It used to be just about taxes, really. Like, how do we spend the money we use uh, that we get from taxes? And now that's also become a free fall debate when it's like, well, no corporation, no the individual. I, I think everyone should be paying taxes, okay? The more money you have, the more you got to pass back. Why? Because you're making money off of us, the individuals <laughs> in your own country. Why is the money going away, you know? Because if we had money reserves to, to, to hold on to, to to pay for the stuff we need, people would complain less. People would be less critical about the, about the political systems. If people were complaining about it, it's like, are we doing something correct? And I would say at this point, no. There's things we can do and things that have to be fixed, but it doesn't happen overnight by an individual. So I, I do think public speaking is how we go back to communicating, you know, go back to an older time where it's just words. No, no aggression, no heated debates. It's literally, here's the words, here's my opinion. Opinion becomes a discourse, a civil discourse. 
And that is obviously what ties public speaking together. Now, let's actually move on to the next question I have for you. Say I'm a new guy coming out, fresh out of college, and my, you know, the world's my oyster, and I'm about to conquer it all. What are the five things you would recommend for a person that's going to start in any career, right? Because I, I feel like, like you, we both agree, communication is unilateral. You can use it anywhere. What would you recommend mm-hmm. to people who are just going to start their career and they're going to be, you know, public speakers or team leaders or managers? They have to be able to talk to their team. So, what would you recommend? Um, the first thing would be to uh, really evaluate whether you want to go to college or university. <laughs> that would be that's 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 start number one. I actually didn't go back to quote unquote higher education until I was almost in my thirties. Um, because I started in acting at six, you know, I had a career, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew what I was good at. And I did that up until like 25, 26 and then, and then retired from acting to go back to school. Um, and even then when I retired from acting, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do as far as a formal education goes. So I think, um, there's, there's this real push and drive for people to figure it out, you know? And I'm still figuring myself out. I'm 42. And I, I don't know. You know, I've got a pretty good concept now. Like I know, I know what my wheelhouse is. I know where my skill sets are. Um, but it took a long time and a lot of self-reflection to actually get there. So one of my first, 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 first bit of advice, I don't know that I can come up with five, but I could probably definitely come up with three. And the first one, the top one, the premier one that anybody has to do is goes back to my GPS analysis. And that is, you need to do a deep dive into you. You need to know who you are. Uh, and what do you actually want? And don't try to do it to please your parents or your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your spouse or whoever, right? You need to please you first. It's that airline oxygen mask theory, right? You put on yours first so that you can help other people. You can't help other people if you're in distress, And as long as you're in distress, you're going to be looking to other people for help. And so the first key is to get grounded and get real with where you are and what your circumstances are, and then have a willingness to admit that you could be wrong and look for ways for growth. One of the things that I'm constantly looking for is my blind spots. So that would be advice number two, have people who can, trustingly and honestly help you evaluate your blind spots. Um, Because not everybody is going to do it for the right reasons and not everybody is going to be honest with you. And those that are going to be honest with you may or may not be doing it for the right reasons. So it's a very rare combination uh, when you can find the person who has your best interest at heart, but is going to give you the, the tough love and the needed love, right? Like sometimes we don't need tough love. Sometimes we don't need to be told, what's going, what we're doing wrong. We need to be told what's, what we're doing right. And that kind of mentorship is really, really rare and hard to find. But if you can, you value that, you treasure that, you keep that and you nurture that. So advice number two would be find a mentor or a peer who can keep you accountable to you and who can help you find your blind spots. Because if you don't know what your blind spots are, you don't know what needs to be strengthened. And, and if you, if you aren't strengthening those blind spots, you're not growing and growth is the key. Cause if you're not in growth, you're in contraction. And if you're in contraction, you're dying. So you want to be living your life, particularly young, 
right? Like if you are at that age where you're in university or you're coming out of university, there is a lot of, there is a lot of life to live. And I know because in my early forties, I have experienced more of my life in the last six to eight years than I did for the, the other three quarters of my life. They, in fact, I, I feel older than I am because of the life experiences that I've had in the last, uh, you know, even five years, uh, the last five years of my life feel like two decades. So recognizing that the, you know, average human is going to live into their late seventies, early eighties. And that is currently, we're likely going to be stretching that it grows and grows every year. So, you know, people who are listening to this, who are younger than me are likely going to be centurions uh, that at 20, you're, you've only lived a fifth of your life at 40. You've only lived two fifths. You haven't even gotten halfway to, I am yet to reach the midway point of my life. I don't get to have a midlife crisis, you know, not yet or at least if I go into crisis, it is not midlife. So that having that perspective that there is so much more and you have, you know, one of my favorite books to read is the compound effect by Darren Hardy, because he discusses incremental change. What you do now may not feel like it has impact, but over time it will. And that goes for anything. You know, you want to improve your finances, start saving a dollar, a week even. That's only $52 in a year. Yeah. But it's that habit of doing it and finding that ability to do that. And if you have compound interest on top of that, it only takes a little bit. And once you hit that critical mass point, then then it there's that explosive growth. Same with if you want to run a marathon, don't try getting in 26 miles the first day. You're not, don't. You want to try to maybe walk 100 yards and then 200 and then 300 and then walk your full marathon route and then start to try to make that walk faster and then get into a light jog and then get into a sprint and then get into your full run and then start to find the improvements within it. It may take 10 or 15 years, but hey, guess what? Then you've run the marathon and you've done it properly without hurting or injuring yourself. That's the other thing too. Like so many people are so anxious to get to the finish line now that if you use that marathon example, if I was to just go and run a marathon today without training, I'm going to injure myself. I'm going to hurt my knees. I'm going to hurt my Achilles. I'm going to hurt my calves. I'm going to hurt my back, my hips. Everything is going to hurt. So yeah, I've accomplished it, but then I won't be able to do it again for days, weeks, months, years. And that's not the goal. You want to build up the muscle enough that you can do this thing that you've wanted to master over and over and over and over and over and over again. And so take the time to do it properly. You know, I've been goaltending in ice hockey since I was 12 years old. So that's 30 years. I'm still getting better. I'm also getting worse (laughs) because I'm getting slower because I'm old, but now I'm having to develop new skill sets, but I've been doing it for so long that I have the base toolbox and understanding to do it. It's the same with the public speaking. You want to get better at it? Remember you'd asked, what's the difference between the superstar here and the person who's just starting out and all it is is experience and time. You want to get good at it. You got to do it regularly. 
confidence in something comes from competence in something. And the only way to be competent in something is to have uh, the qualifications necessary and sufficient experience to perform that task with minimal or no supervision. And it's the experience that is the key part. You you could have all the theoretical understanding, all the knowledge, all the qualifications. You can train and train and train and train. If you don't actually get up off your butt and do a thing, you will never, ever master it. Repeated effort is what is required to gain perfection. And until you do that, you will never, ever, ever master a skill. So get out and do. So there you go. Three, three. I appreciate Figure it. out who you are, master that skill over time, and find somebody who can help you find your blind spots. That's good advice because I feel like people underestimate themselves a little too much sometimes. Realizing <laughs> that I can do so much when we're younger, right? And then growing up and realizing, oh, life doesn't pan out that way. And then that kind of sets you back. But again, if you're consistently trying and upgrading yourself by doing the work, you know, uh, it's not just a click of the button. Oh, I'm there. No, it's it's constantly, there's processing in the back end. There's, you're thinking about it. Your memory's always running. Just trying to find out what's the next best thing for yourself. I do appreciate that. It's the consistency that ties you to actually succeed. And again, tying in that confidence. How do you sound confident? How do you look? How do you feel confident? It's literally being more assured. More assured of yourself and your skill level and, your, and in the way you, you, know, you assert yourself in terms of what you do. It's not about being confident to the whole world. No, it's about being confident for yourself to help balance out the unknown because the whole world is just wild and unknown. But you yourself should be able to master yourself to be able to succeed in that in that mindset. So I think that's where confidence really ties all together. Well, and confidence is, you know, you can have confidence in one area and be insecure in another. Like it, it's this, this, this idea that we are either, again, it's that binary decision. You're either confident or you're not. Well, no, like I can come on right now. I have years of experience, which gives me the competence to be able to be confident coming on and speaking to you with no script with no agenda and you and i can have a free form discussion even though you know there's probably two thousand people that will listen to this episode or more that you know we have this big audience i i that doesn't phase me i'm confident in in the messaging that i am but if you were to ask me to come on and or ask me to perform a task that I, I, I'm not comfortable doing, that I don't understand. I'm not going to be confident in that because I, I don't have the competence in order to do that task effectively. And so it's entirely possible to have, you know, I think of like uh, pro athletes, right? You see these people who perform in, uh, at a high, high level in front of tens of thousands of people in a stadium and are terrified to get in front of a camera and do a media appearance. Well, of course, because they've been playing their sport since they were like six or seven or eight. And they have years and years and years of experience of doing that task. But that task had nothing to do with this professional expectation now of this media scrum. And so they freeze. You get those interviews that look like this. Yeah, all yes. Like, what's going on? Right? And deer in headlights. And that's, and that's, it's perfectly acceptable because their skill set is this, not this, right? It's it's A, not B, and this expectation that we're confident in 100% of things. No, 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 no. 
you know, and then there's also that, that argument of that false bravado. I hate, I hate, I hate, I hate when somebody tells somebody to fake it till they make it. Don't, don't, don't. That is a, again, a recipe for disaster because you're not plugging in the right waypoints in your GPS. You don't know where you're starting from if you're trying to fake it till you make it. You know, I would rather somebody be it to see it. Right. I would rather appreciate right. you guys putting the effort to actually try to learn it to try to bullshit me about something. Because then I would respect yeah. the hustle and the effort you put into it, not the fact that you are an expert at it. I don't expect you to be like, hey, I heard you like bread, you bake. Like, no. I expect you to be like, no, I like bread, I know how to taste, and, you know, well, I like those qualities, not a cooker or a baker. Like you can make that happen if you practice. And now I'm like, oh, so you're learning. Cool. That's more acceptable than saying, oh, dude, I'm the best out there in the world. You have just now never heard of me. Not to be braggadocious, but like people who are humble because of the effort they put in, not because of the lies they make, are way more respectable. I would say hands down any, anywhere in the world. Yes. Be honest with where you are in your journey, you know, and where did it start? And, wh- and it's okay to know that this is where you want to get to. Like my big goal right now is to be on a stage that Tony Robbins is headlining. That is because to me, that is kind of that you've made it point, right? Because he is literally and figuratively the giant in the, in the speaking industry, right? There aren't many other public speakers that have the the platform and the reach and the name recognition that Tony Robbins has. So, and you know, he does a lot of appearances where he's the headliner and there are other people who speak on that stage before him. And I think if I can get on that stage, if I can say this was me and I have that that proof, that to me is the my validation. That is my goal. So that's the destination that I've plugged into my GPS. If I never get on one of Tony's stages, does that mean that I am a bad public speaker? No. It just means that I haven't reached that end destination that I had in my mind of where I wanted to go. It doesn't stop the actions that I take day in, day out of growing my craft, growing my skill, honing my confidence and my competence through repeated effort. I'm still going to do this stuff because if I don't do this stuff, I will never get on that stage. But if I do this stuff, I may. And if I don't, there may be a point where Tony is not the titan of the industry. And maybe all of a sudden, Tyler Foley is because I put in the effort and I focused on me and developing me. If that happens, great. If it doesn't, great. Because I'm still developing and growing me as a person. And really, particularly in this industry, if I want to grow and reach those stages, it can't be about me. I need to be focused on serving an audience. So if I'm going to come on your show and if I'm going to be on Preps and Refs, I need to make sure that it's not the ego-driven, this is who I am, rah, 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 look at me, I'm amazing. It's that how can I provide value to your audience? You know, if people are tuning in and listening to what Dark Void and I are having to say, have you been served? 
did something I say or we discuss add value to you? Otherwise, we've wasted somebody's two hours. We've wasted our two hours, and there is no point in doing this. I like how you were able to say, you know what, my goal is this, but it might change down along the road because of the experience getting there. You know, GPS isn't straightforward. It changes around, you know, hey, there's traffic here. There's a, you know, police stop there or something that makes you deviate just a little bit. The destination. May I change. am fully prepared in my journey to hear Garmin say recalculating, <laughs> recalculating. Because it happens on a daily basis. Like even in the last year, right? My job, or two years, my job is to get up in front of people in public spaces who are sat very near to each other and speak to them. That, is, that has been my career for the, the last like five, 10 years. And I got Garmin yelling, recalculating around March 17th of 2020. And I've been hearing recalculating for the last 18 months. But you know what? Or two years. Like, it's a full two years now. And ugh, that I, I could have I curled up and given up. Or I could have done the new route. Like you said, there was a big roadblock that was put in front of me. And instead of sitting in gridlock and going, well, I guess I just wait, we find the side road. And you know what? There's some beautiful things that you see along those journeys when you take the detours out into the farm fields and out into the mountains, right? You see things that you wouldn't have seen. You experience things that you wouldn't have experienced. I certainly wouldn't have pushed myself on social platforms the way that I did. I did not get on podcasts until about uh, April. Uh, so I would be almost exactly a year ago today was the probably the first time I really started actively seeking out getting on podcasts. Over 250 later, this has now become a new skill set that I am teaching my clients. I'm like, oh, gee, this is a thing. And there are so many other people who are like, you know, this is a thing that I, you know, that I wouldn't have listened to before that now I go, oh, now I understand what you were saying. So again, my perception has changed. My concept has changed. My toolbox has been amended. And now I have this new skill set that is actually proving to be more lucrative than me chasing the 12 to 20 stages that I spoke on every year. Now I can have this freedom and flexibility to speak for my house. I reached an audience of two and a half million people last year the largest audience I've ever spoken to in my entire life previous to that was about 18,000. And typically I'm not speaking to, to groups that large. So, you know, all of a sudden my, my reach and my growth has expanded just because I allowed myself to detour. I wasn't locked into this one travel plan. One of the best things you can hear in life is Garmin chirping in your ear, recalculating, recalculating. And I, it's like I said, it, it, you start off with, Hey, I'm going to take a left cause it's the quickest way taking a right just cause it happens to be more convenient. I do appreciate that recognizing that things are, aren't stagnant as we like them to be, you know, it's not a static issue that's involved in life. It's, it's always free flowing. It's always changing. And I think that's what makes people very 
very tenacious. They're able to change all the time just because they see that change happening or they're like, you know what? Not a problem. I'll fly with it. Just go keep on going. I love that. And that's, I think, the one thing that makes humankind a unique species. Like, don't get me wrong, animals survive, but they don't thrive as much as we do because obviously we're dominant, but that's because we are tenacious. So I, I, I love seeing that in people in their mindset, the way they act, the way they perceive themselves. Like, yeah, I wasn't there then. Here, here I am now, not where I wanted to be, but completely different in contrast. So it's always wonderful to see that. Um, and I see that. Well, and the, a lot. the other thing is just because you're not where you thought you were going to get to doesn't mean that where you got to was bad. Like I could have plugged in Delaware into my GPS, ended up in Bora Bora. Do I go, oh, oh. no, you're on a beach, dude. Enjoy it. Delaware's a hole. But you, you, you focus on this one thing so much that if you end up over here, somehow it's a disservice. No, that's that's where it took. And if you really need to circle back and get back to Delaware, I'll put you on a flight, my friend. But, like, look around at where you're at. Enjoy the water for a little bit. It is a pristine aqua. My question to you is, when you were a Yuri little boy, what was your goal that you had in mind? The first goal that you can think of. Be a pilot. Now, is that yeah, a, like a boat pilot or a plane pilot? What are we uh, airplane. I wanted to. I wanted to fly a, a plane. I didn't want to captain a ship. Although now, I would like to have my license to do both. And it, it is actually one of the things, like on you know my bucket list of of things to do. Um, getting my boat license, just even to be able to operate small watercraft legally is is something that i want to do and what's what's ridiculous about it in canada um you know for personal watercraft it's literally an online test and i'm just too lazy to take it um but for to operate a plane i actually i i know i I know the flight school that i'm going to go to i know the instructor who i'm going to train with um and i know the designations that i want to to get with it i would like to be dual engine certified uh, I'll never, never be a commercial pilot, but I'd like to have the skill set to be able to do that if I wanted to. Um, and that's still, it's still a goal. And, you know, I have the the plan, but again, it's, it's one of those destinations. It's not, it's not a waypoint in my GPS that I've, I've plugged in yet. I've done the research on it. I just haven't done it, but yeah, like five, six year old Tyler, I wanted to be uh I wanted to be a, a pilot in an airplane. I even had airplane wallpaper in my bedroom and like little model planes. I used to get those little balsa wood ones and fly them, um, make, make model planes started to get into the RC ones and, and, and fly like actual model aircraft. I, I, I love planes always have. That's good. And I think it's important to realize that there's more to just what you do a profession. Like, you know, dreams and other ambitions exist outside of how people recognize you. So I like asking those questions just because I'm like, you know, we all thought weird things as kids. They're like, you know what? One day I'm going to be an astronaut, you know, the American story. But at the same yeah. time, that changes. That changes to the individual as they grow. And But it's always, I, I like pointing that out to be like, hey, what's your first memory of a goal that you had? Because it changes. And then I think that gives people a nostalgia to be like, oh, you know what? I'm... I'm a little bit better now. I'm not that same person. So I, I do appreciate that sense. Thank you. Well, and 14-year-old me wanted to be a marine biologist. That didn't pan out either. 
I still love and am fascinated with sharks. That'll take you to Bali, but, then maybe you, you switch it out there. <laughs> yeah, but, you know. A little bit more back on topic to the public speaking. Let's go with your career path. You said you were acting. Uh, from acting, mm-hmm. I'm guessing you said you, you went to school for a bit. Or not a school. What was the first, what, what was the mindset that you had going into that? Um, school was uh, a means to an end because a lot of what I, when I retired, you know, I have I have this general knowledge base and I, again, be, probably because of my study of performing arts, uh, am a bit of a chameleon. Um, I've also been very blessed with uh, coming through some, some of the highest rated education systems in North America uh, and not realizing it. That's the other thing, too. Like, these are not things that I planned. They're not even necessarily things that my mother planned for me. It just happened to work out that I am I am very, very lucky at birth, gender, race, location. I was given a lot to start off with as gifts in my life. And one of those gifts was an incredible education, especially being in the fine arts at a young age, because when you're in um, a play or you're in a movie and you're under, particularly under 12, but also uh, 17 and under, one of the legal stipulations is that you receive tutelage while on set. And so not only did I happen to grow up in one of the highest ranked educational districts in North America, and that's North America. So that's already a, an advantage and a step up there too. I say, is it a whole continent or one big thing? I don't understand the difference. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, but I was able to then get private tutelage, one-on-one instruction for a, a good percentage of my educational career where I got individual focused attention. So I would say one of my skill sets is that I'm smart and I understand concepts pretty quickly. And so I'm easily able to adapt into various other vocations. You know, I do have a, a pretty good engineering mind. Like I really, I love problems. I love math. Uh, it's, it's one of the things that I've always been good at. I scholastically, I've always excelled, but then I have this art side too. And it's the arts that I've always pursued as, as a passion, but I've been able to work in other industries and really excel in them. But at a certain point, you start being held back by the lack of formal education. And I didn't ever, I was never one of those people who felt that I needed to go to university because I was always going to be an actor. And I'm like, I don't need to go to school to learn to be an actor. I don't need to go to, you know, the actor studio. I don't need to go to Studio 52. I don't need to go to Juilliard. Like, I, I know how to do this thing that I do. This is, I'm already doing it. I can get better at it by doing it, not by going and studying it. Um, and I did go to a fine arts high school. Like I went to the Alberta High School of Fine Arts. So I did have formal training and I didn't need to further that. But when I did need to go back, I was finding that I needed to have at least a diploma. You know, I didn't need to go for a full year degree, but a lot of the things that I wanted to do were asking, you know, that I wanted to try and wanted to experiment with were asking for a diploma. So I was like, well, I've made all this money acting. Let's go back to school and I'll take, you know, 
geomatics engineering technologies. And geomatics, by the way, is the study of, of Earth. Anybody who's ever looked as, as turned on the satellite view on Google Maps, that's what I went back to school to study to how to do, is how to stitch those photo mosaics together, how to take 3D pictures and make them line up properly 2D on your computer screen. That's what I specialized in when I went back to school. Completely unrelated to, uh, to what I had been doing, but it was a passion of mine. It was a thing that I really enjoyed doing. It's also a lineage in my family because my one uncle was a photogrammetrist. My other uncle is a cartographer and a photogrammetrist. My grandfather was a surveyor for a while. My other uncle did bathymetric surveys for the army. Like, uh, like this earth study thing ran in my blood. So it was a thing that was always a peripheral interest. And I decided if I wanted to quote unquote make money, that was what I was going to do. And then when I got out of that, the first thing I did was go, well, I'm not going to make money working for somebody else, let's start my own business. So I found a, a really good mentor and business partner and we developed a, a, and started my own company, which collapsed miserably. That was a, a, a devastating failure three years into the enterprise that to this day uh, was full of learning opportunities, but still hurts when I think about it. Like it crushes my soul every time I'm like, uh, cause that was going to be my forever job. And it, it, it wasn't. I like that. Um, considering the fact that I'm also a guy who just recently had a business about a year in, and I know that the failing point is up to five years. So here I am praying for another four. Um, yeah. But I do, I do understand the fact that there is a lot of knowledge you gain by doing the experience, uh, doing a business, you know, going to school. I, I, I argue with people, if you're going to go to school, it's for something you know you're going to use. Do not go to school thinking, I'm going to be a doctor and instantly be handed a job, a career that instantly covers everything you need in your life. It's not how it works, ladies and gentlemen. It's about learning a new skill and making yourself an asset for yourself to be able to sell yourself for a job. Understand that. If you know what you're doing and you're good at what you are, of course you'll be picked up. But this is a world where a hundred other thousands of people think the same thing in your own campus. Do not be fooled to think that that's going to be that you're the exclusion. You know, you're the unique version of the whole world out there. I would say really take a key interest into what you are focused in, whether it be career, whether it be schooling, whether it be even a hobby at this point. If it's something you love or like, go ahead, you know, follow that bunny trail, go into the knuckle, whatever it takes to, to really lose yourself in it and actually appreciate it and realize I can do something with this. Once you have that realization, learn. Really grow from that. Do the thing that he has you have passion for, like, right? We're talking here. Uh, Tyler, he he obviously loved acting. Still loves acting, and he took so much from it because he loved it. And I want everyone to realize that that's where your passion leads. That's what it gives you that energy to to accelerate with this ball that they give you. Like, hey, just run with it, and you're like going, gone. Um, so again, schooling is also one of those things you have to be. Honestly, contrast about it. Like you have to be what's the pros and cons. Not everyone can afford schooling and not everyone should do schooling just because it's an option doesn't mean you have to take it. Well, and and it's this rush. Like don't don't rush into it at 18. As you said, one of the key things is like for me, my belief, again, this is not fact, this is opinion. My belief is that um, advanced or higher education should be there to help you grow your skill set. But that implies that you have a base skill set to grow. So know what that is. Being like, I want to be a doctor is great. 
but why do you want to be a doctor? Is it because your parents have said that you should be? It's because society says that that is what you want. Did you take a, you know, an aptitude test with your guidance counselor and doctor was one of the options? Like what has led you to say, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. I want to, you know, these are, these are my pursuits that I want to go for. And the other thing is too, I think we need to get back to normalizing trade school. There's nothing wrong with saying, I want to be a mechanic. I want to be an electrician. I want to be a carpenter. There's in demand, high skill. Like it's a reason it's called the skilled trades. It is a skill set and there should be nothing wrong with, with saying that that is what I want to do. We need plumbers. God bless them because that is a job I will never do, but we still need them. And in fact, I would say they're one of the most vital components to our society. And, and here, here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen, if there's no plumbers out there doing these trade schools, guess who's becomes the plumber just by de facto where, Hey, there's no more plumbers out there. Guess what happens? Hey, honey, the toilet's clogged. What has to be done? If you can't get it out with the plunger, you just got promoted, my friend. And, you know, someone somewhere out there had to do the job and they're good at it. That's why they're in demand and they get paid still. Yeah, it's not an office job. I know everyone dreams of that. But then at the same time, who wants to be in a box office all day for eight hours a day for the rest of their life? It's just doesn't make sense. Well, and that's exactly it. Like, so again, what are your skill sets? What are your passions? So these, if you're looking to get into higher education, you want to really do that deep dive and that analysis and figure out what it is that you want to strengthen and grow. And again, what are your blind spots? What do you need to develop as skills for you to go forward? I wish that I would have focused because I, again, I knew a lot about geomatics. I worked for mapping firms. I had a very large community of people who could have supported me through that. I wish that I had actually gone back and done more business studies and looked towards something closer to an MBA than a geomatics engineering diploma, because I think my business would have been better. On the flip side, I learned a lot watching that thing crumble and burn so that now operating total buy-in i'm you know i have now celebrated february 5th was the uh the uh seventh year of our operation so i've made it over that five year in fact one of the things that made me cry was making it over the five years seeing march 17th roll around and then being like oh i made the milestone and now everything may collapse. And what was interesting is that put a fire because it was a decision point. Do I, do I let, because I had 90% of my business evaporate in three weeks. Contracts that were signed in January were instantly dissolved as soon as the world shut down with no anticipated restart of those contracts. And only about 10 to 15% of them have come back but I've still managed to generate revenue through the business and keep it going over the last two years. And that was because I had to, I had to dig deep. Is this a thing that I am committed to, or is this a thing that I can walk away from? And the reality is, is that I want to see it succeed in order for me to, to feel 
fulfillment, I need to keep this business going. Part of it is too, is I took it over from my father-in-law. So like I have a bit of a family legacy that needs to stay with that because he was able to successfully run that business for 10 years. So I, you know, I, I feel a little bit of familial pressure in order to make it run. And he has nothing to do with it anymore. I have, I have probably the greatest father-in-law on the, on the planet. Um, he is, he is just one of the greatest human beings I've ever met. And subsequently he raised the greatest human being I've ever met. And I married her and I'm very, very blessed and lucky to have her in my life. But my father-in-law, you know, he has, he, he wouldn't care if I was to let the business collapse. So there, I don't have pressure from him, but I do have internal pressure on me because you know what, it's a nice legacy and I wouldn't mind passing it along to my daughter if she ever wanted to take it over. And to be able to have a generational business and have that kind of succession in place and recognizing that it may not be a thing for her and then having to find some other form of succession is still, you know, these are all things that I think about on a regular basis, but it can't be, it can't happen if I give in the, if I throw in the towel and if I give up. So this, this last two years have forced me to really be like, well, what are we going to do? And the other thing is too, for five years, I was really successful because I ran my uh, business the way that I run my household finances. And I don't believe in deficit spending. I refuse to go into debt to finance operations because I know that that's the first thing that the money has to go back to. And yet, you know, six months in, I was like, well, maybe we're going to have to take that bridge loan. Maybe we're going to have to look at some of these alternative financing things. Maybe we need to look at new ways of generating revenue. You know, maybe Facebook advertising is a thing that I'm going to have to either learn or subcontract out. And I rapidly learned that I don't want to learn it. So I have subcontracted it out. So, you know, but like I look at my Facebook ad spend and I go, why are we spending that money? Are we getting an ROI on that? And I'll tell you for we, I spent uh, over $15,000 on advertising last year alone, $15,000. And I saw three grand come back. That was it. And I'm going, this is not worth it. But people who can see my blind spot were like, listen, we've been doing it wrong. We haven't really nailed down the avatar. You haven't been advertising the way that you need to. We're pivoting with the business. So let's pick a course. And literally two months ago, we we're like, okay, well this, so this is the destination. This is what we're targeting. This is where we're going to go. And all of a sudden, you know, it still hasn't, I still haven't made up for the 15 K, but we made another two grand last month. So in one month, I did what we did in a year through the advertising. I'm still generating revenue otherwise, but it's this advertising ROI that I'm looking at. You know, and so now all of a sudden that we're starting to do this. And again, it's that compound effect in the Darren Hardy book. These little incremental things, you start doing them. And if you just, just keep doing them and trust that you have put in the destination correctly into your GPS, suddenly, you know, you go from riding a snail to riding a rocket ship. And I am, I'm excited to see where the next two or three months goes because I think we will get that ROI back. And I didn't believe that for the last 12 months. I was like, this is a waste of time. I could have invested this money better. Elsewhere. Yep. 
but I do appreciate it. Like even going through the whole start to biz uh, and uh, sorry, start the conversation to the end right now. You talk about how destinations change, how you're still, you know, actively trying to trying to get to those destinations, even if it's not the most uh, common path people know of and how you are learning from that and gaining from that still that growth is in there in that piece. And again, ladies and gentlemen, understand this is the process you have to stick with. If you want to succeed, always do more, do as much as you can to get to your goal. Even if that's not the destination, just try, try. And so will lead you to other avenues in life, which will either have, you know, good fortune. You'll have other opportunities. You'll see a lot more different things than you would if you just stayed in ways. Please do not be stagnant with yourselves. Try to grow. Try to push yourselves. And the most, like, I would say self-conscious way. Because if you can't be honest with yourself, like, this is what I want, this is what I need, it's not going to go anywhere. And, again, that's how businesses thrive. They they have a goal in mind. They have a purpose. How they reach out to people and what services they provide, that's goal-centric there. And how they can get those services out to their clients and customers is why it matters to always continuously keep trying new things, you know, developing new platforms and other services that will entice your customers. So, you know, who knew that business is very similar to how people interact. It's just very unique that it happened to be that way, right? So, all right, I would say on to the next thing. Now, this is probably something that ties in well in all of life, but what's an ideal person that can network with anyone right because you know you could be shy public speaking but once you're off the stage you still got to go shake someone's hand at the end of the day you're like hey hi who are you and now you have to present yourself how do you start that threshold you know that networking piece is it's great if you have the confidence to say hi and then you can blank out what makes networking well so the first thing is, is i think the majority of people are networking wrong and this is coming from somebody who's an introvert so a lot of people assume because I am on stage that I am an extroverted personality. I am a showy personality. I definitely can put on the razzle dazzle, but I am an introvert by nature. Um, and I think a lot of people confuse what an introvert and extrovert is. An introvert is somebody who gains energy by being isolated and on their own. An extrovert gains energy by being in public and around people. I find being in public and around people incredibly draining. That is the fastest way to suck my energy. There, there are two things that I hate in life, cold and being in crowds. That is, those are the two things that drive me insane. So if I am in a uh, chilled conference room with other people, <laughs> that is pretty much my definition of hell. But the, the, irony is, is that I feel alive and most fulfilled on stage. And what's interesting about that is because I'm not actually in the crowd and I'm not having to, to make small talk. And it's actually the biggest expression of isolation that you can have, especially on a big stage in a darkened auditorium, because you can't see anybody else. And the stage is so massive that it's just this big black box and I can feel alive and alone and feel like I'm fulfilling my purpose because I can, I can feel the energy of people. You know that they're out there, but you can't see them. And you know when you're on because you're really delivering. And, and that's one of those things. I love connection. I do love connection. I love feeling that I have 
landed with my audience. I love the feeling that they understand that I'm guiding them through this journey. Um, nothing beats a standing ovation at the end of a presentation in the world. I don't care what synthetic drugs are out there. I don't care what natural drugs are out there. And I don't care how many different positions, you know, in the Karma Sutra, nothing in the world feels better than receiving a standing ovation. Just going to put it out there. So for me, when people want to go networking, what they really need to understand is networking is exactly that building and growing your network. And understanding that a network is a symbiotic organism. And in order for a network to work, it has to, when we pull here, it vibrates everywhere. Like you, you branch out, you are building relationships. And so for me, when I go networking, I'm not going into a networking event thinking, how am I going to get my next client? And when you go in networking thinking, how do I gain business for me? That is when you're doing networking wrong because everybody has been to that networking event where you've had the guy or girl come up to you and, and, and was like, here's my business card. Here's my business card. Here's my business card. This is what I do. You need my services. Trust me. Everybody needs my services. Do you eat? I have a restaurant and you eat and I have a restaurant, which means you should come eat at my restaurant because you eat and I have a restaurant and you need my service. And you're like, just get out of my face. Like, I don't like you. And I don't eat shawarma. <laughs> so I'm sorry. Uh, I don't, you know, I, I'd rather have a falafel. By the way, what's the difference between shawarma and a falafel? I will never, ever know. It's actually a question my wife and I had last uh, Tuesday because I ordered, I do eat shawarma. I actually quite like shawarma. And she had the falafel. And it's basically the same thing, except one's beef and one's chicken. And we literally asked ourselves, is that the difference? I'm not sure that I even need to know the answer, but it is. I digress. The point is, is if you want to really effectively network, you need to go in not looking for your next client or your next business opportunity. What you should go in is be looking for strategic partners who can help grow your business. You're looking for those strategic alliances that you can bring into your network and who you can offer value to as well. Like you can't, if you make it ego, you're never going to succeed. So it needs to be less about me, more about the, so if I go in looking for strategic alliances, strategic business partners who I can, who we can help grow each other's businesses that's when you really start networking more effectively because I can come in and I can say, Hey, dark void, what do you do? And how can I be of service? What is your current need? Right? You may need to develop your public speaking skills. At which point I go, you know, interestingly enough, I am the author of the power to speak naked, which is a number one best-selling book. And, and I run these training programs. I have this thing coming up in Vegas. We're going to have 300 people. Somebody at the end of that training is going to get the opportunity to win a, a chance to speak on Tony Robbins stage because I've, I've put together a connection with the promoter and maybe that would be a thing that interests you. And you go, yes, actually, let's do that thing. But if that is not what your current business need is, 
I'm not going to start hawking my stuff. So if I come to you and being like, hey, I'm a public speaker trainer, you, you everybody needs to speak. It's one of the biggest leadership skills. You know, 77% of people express an anxiety around public speaking, which means three quarters of this room needs my service. Go! That may be true, but there's another statistic that says, despite the statistic of 77% of people expressing anxiety around public speaking, only 5% of people, 5 to 7% will seek out help at getting better at it. Well, that means that in uh, you know, in a room of 50 people, I have one, one potential client in that room. So I could spend that whole time running around trying to find that one person. Or typically in these networking events, they give you the opportunity to introduce yourself. So don't say your name because they've already introduced you. They're going to come and they're going to be like, you know, Tyler, introduce yourself, right? It's how you started this episode. So you go, okay, hi, now is my opportunity. Don't say your name and really don't necessarily say what you do up front. When I get that 30-second opportunity, one of the things that I will do is I will go, who here hates coming to these events? Who identifies as an introvert? Who finds these things exhausting because you don't know what to say and you don't know why you're here. You just know that you need to network to grow your business. Well, I struggled with that for a long while until I figured out this one thing that makes networking super easy. So if you would like to learn how to network more effectively, be a better public speaker and overcome some of those fears and anxieties of being around things like this, come find me in the corner and you and I can have a discussion about that. Anybody who identifies that now will come and talk to me. I didn't waste my time introducing myself. I didn't even really say what it is that I do. I just say, this is the problem that I solve. And so whoever identifies with that, I can now figure out what their exact need is before I can present a solution. Because it still may not be my solution. But I have a whole bunch of other people that I know that if my solution isn't for them, well, here's my buddy, Adam Markell. So you want to be on a TEDx stage? Adam will get you on there. You want to learn how to podcast better? My buddy Alex will do that. Or my other friend, Sean Douglas, will help you do that. You want to learn how to master your nerves and get more comfortable in a boardroom or at uh, networking events, or you want to get really good at speaking on stage and actually telling a powerful story that impacts your audience? Well, here's my solution. And now you and I can have a conversation about the power to speak naked or the power to, of influence or total buy-in. And we, I can figure out which one of my solutions you need best. At the very least, I can give you a signed copy of the power to speak naked and say, thank you for coming and chatting with me. Right. That's effective networking. And then once I've talked to those few people, few people who are going to come and talk to me and I can get their information. I'm not going to give them my business card. I'm going to get their information. I'm going to say, tell me what you need. Let's set up a time where you, you and I can do it. And I will follow up with you. And I put it on me. I put them in my calendar and I make sure that I'm following up with them. I'm not giving them my business card, hoping that they follow up with me. I'm going to actively invest my time into them and show them that I'm interested. And then the rest of that hour or two or whatever, however long that networking thing is, I'm going to go around and I'm going to say, what do you do and how can I be of service? And then you can tell me what your needs are. And instead of me trying to push my product on you, I can say, oh, I know this person who does this thing. I will put you in contact with them. And again, you write it down. You make an appointment. You be the one to follow up. 
Because just because you didn't have the service that they need doesn't mean you weren't the solution to their problem because you provided them the connection to solve their issue, which means you solved their issue. And they will remember that because we as a human society believe in reciprocity, whether or not we believe it or not, we are all transactional. So if I do you this favor, instantly, what do you feel you need to do? Do me a favor. And the goal is not to gain this huge favor bank. The goal is to genuinely serve. You want to start making these connections because people will start to remember that you're the person who has the solutions and they're going to start turning to you. And then they're going to start asking, well, what do you need? Well, currently I need, you know, these are my needs. I really could use a social media manager really badly, actually. You know, the VAs so far are doing an okay job, but I need somebody who's dedicated to it. And preferably somebody who's going to work on commission because we've blown through the entire budget. So if they want to earn money, they're going to have to be making money for me. And that's a rare unicorn. And I understand that ask. And I could use more clients, private coaching clients who want to get better at public speaking. And then now people are out there and they, they'll, they will want to help me because I've helped them. And that's the thing. Be of a giving mentality first. Give, 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 and you'd be amazed what the universe brings back. But that's how you network more effectively. Don't waste your time trying to find those needles in the haystack. Grab a magnet and throw it in. Pull out the needle and then start asking the straw what it needs. I do like that analogy of throwing in the magnet because more often than not, because when I was at state, I was doing uh, engineering. I would go to conferences and I would see everyone and their mother run out and be like, this is my card. This is who I am. You know, very pronounced, very exaggerated. Very excited. I understand that. I'm like, that's very, very good for you. Those who were selected, though, it was like a shouting match. Who will kiss you out the loudest? All right, we'll take you in. We'll talk to you for a minute. And then there was me in the background. I'm like, I don't really care to talk to you. Um, I would particularly walk around and be like, hey, you know, who, you know, what do you do? What You know, like, try to be more genuinely interested. I feel like people feel more comfortable to actually talk to you if you're not trying to get something out of them. That kind of ties into like, hey, I'm not here to sell you anything, but if you feel like you need to have a situation that I can help you, I'm more than happy to. Um, and, uh, you know, ironically, that's the same thing they teach you in customer service for any realtors. Like, hey, you know, just be, you know, customer centric. What can you do to help them at any cost? Uh, networking just happens to be the same thing. You are more likable because you provide more of a service or information of a just general helpful feeling that they're more attracted to you as an individual. Um, that's not how it works with dating, ladies and gentlemen, so do not try to use that. <laughs> but it helps with making genuine friends and lifelong relationships, you know, like business partners, coworkers, um, like just socially it's <laughs> acceptable. And that's that's why I, I wanted to ask, like, what's the what did you perceive as a good networking individual? And I, I think we hit all those points properly in my opinion now let's go back to something you mentioned when you were talking about the uh, facebook piece about um, the marketing the money you spend you said something about an avatar i mean i I, that went right over my head but you know it stuck out what what does that mean well so your avatar your ideal client right if you don't know who you are trying to attract you're never going to use the right, right language, the right medium, the right anything. Like one of the questions that I have, particularly around the Facebook advertising, is my, is my ideal client actually on Facebook? 
you know, because really when we honed down, who do I speak to? Um, I've in, in my experience, I found that our, our ideal clients are typically one of two things. The first is who we were five to 10 years ago, right? Because I've evolved. Me today is not me five years ago. It's certainly not me 10 years ago. Has anybody ever looked back at their, you know, memories on Facebook, memories from 10 years, 12 years, 15 years ago? And you're like, who was that? Did I write that? Was that a thing that I actually posted out into the world? Oh my, my friend who is that person? Yeah. You know, I'm actually surprised. I, one of the things that I really like about Facebook is that it's starting to serve those things up to me. And one of the things that I love about it is it shows my growth because I'm actually really offended by the dude I was 15 years ago. That guy was cocky, uh, wickedly arrogant, quite rude very opinionated and frankly uh, really pessimistic about about life in general i seem to only post about the problems in the world and there was a lot of me 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 what i want and uh i don't like that dude like he's really i i am <laughs> the more i look back on my facebook feed the more i'm like wow i really lucked up marrying my wife because I would not have married me uh, who I was when me and her met. But, you know, like, it's just, it's amazing to me. And I want to help that person, right? Like, I, I recognize where I was 10 to 15 years ago, five years ago. And I know what I needed to learn to get to where I am now. I also know what my skill sets were. Like I still had, like I had some good things going for me at that time. Like I was that rough gem, right? I just, I needed the polish. I needed the repeated effort to grow. And uh, so my ideal avatar, who I can speak to easiest and who I can provide the most value to is me. So when I'm looking at who my ideal client is, it's me, me five years ago. And that's part of that, you know, that deep dive, that deep analysis of, of being honest with you. Where, where are you? Where did you come from? Where are you trying to get to? What are you doing? Because I believe to, to be a fully, to really experience the human experience, to really be human, we need to be three things all at the same time. We need to be a student who is learning which means we're growing because remember if we're not growing, we're in contraction and contraction is death. So you need to be a student and learning. You also need to be a peer. You need to be supporting other people who are at the level that you are while you're, while you're learning and growing yourself so that you can have a benchmark so that you can have those trusted people who can show you your blind spots where you can share knowledge. This is what's working for me. What's working for you. Let's grow together, right? The tide raises a high tide raises all boats. So you need to be a peer. You need to be a student. But to understand that you've actually mastered a skill, you need to be a teacher. So you need to be mentoring that next generation that's coming up so that they can get to your level and eventually be your peers or potentially surpass you. One of the great things, one of the biggest rewards I can ever receive is when somebody that I've mentored and coached goes on to do better than me. Like how awesome is that? right? And now they are doing things that you are, you yourself are striving to do. 
And that's happened a few times for me where I'm like, look, look, oh, they had that, that skill set that I was able to mentor and nurture until they became my peer and then say, hey, this is who I'm learning from. Now let's pass you along. My goal, particularly as, as, a, as a coach, as a, a consultant, is to become obsolete to my clients within 12 to 24 months. If you're still working with me 24 months from now, we have all wasted our time. I want you to grow and move beyond me because I'm at this level. Like I'm not here. I'm growing to here, but I, I'm here. I do know that I can help the people who, who still need to grow to where I am, but there is so much more room for growth beyond me that I want to make myself obsolete to my clients. That is always my goal. I don't want to have these clients for life. What I want to have is raving fans who say, I worked with Tyler. This is where I got to. Now you need to come work with Tyler. That's how I'm going to replenish and, and fill my, uh, my funnel is through references, not by retaining my clients because mine is not, you know, mine's a B2B service. I don't, I, I don't need to, to retain that, that business. In fact, I, I shouldn't if I want to be truly effective at what I'm doing. And so I'm going to reach out to the people who are me. I'm going to talk to me five years ago so that I can bring them up to my level now and then push them beyond and encourage them to move on. The other avatar that I have is who comes to me the most for advice and what advice do I give? And so that commonality, what are the common traits of the people who are coming and asking me, how do you do what you do and how can I do it as well? And so what we've really discovered over the last, you know, particularly in the last three to four months where it's become like ultra super clear. And it's also a hybrid of who I was, like who was I five to 10 years ago and who are these people who are coming and asking for advice? And we've really hit that sweet spot. It is self-published authors who have, no idea how to market their book or the products or services that may or may not be developed around that and help them really grow their platform, grow their influence and show them how to make what is a humble idea, a product that people will buy, you know, cause there's a reason why they, and, and it's not just a self-published author, self-published author of a nonfiction book. Like we really hone it down. I have helped fiction authors um, grow their platform. But that's, that's really all I'm helping them do is grow their platform, get a little bit better about speaking about themselves, speaking about their influence. Where I can really drive help is showing self-published authors of nonfiction works who have a, a drive and a goal and an ambition and a thought around why they wrote that book. Otherwise, they wouldn't write the book right? Like we don't, we don't set out to write a book just because, eh, maybe I should have a book. No, you write out a book because you have this burning desire to spread some kind of information to the world. So how do you do that? How do you do it effectively? How do you grow your audience? And how do you turn that audience into raving fans? How do you get clients out of that? How do we monetize this idea while being of service to the original intent? And, and that is where, you know, now I, now I know specifically what about me because I'm multifaceted. So I can't speak to the entire me because there's only one me, but there's this one bit that I struggled with. 
How do I get this self-published book out into the world? How do I grow this as a business? How do I find the big stages? How do I work towards being invited onto Tony's stage? I can tell you right now, these are how you run your own events. These are how you get on podcasts. This is how you get the media exposure. This is how you support the book. These are the things that if you've published your book already, let's check that these are in these in your book. Otherwise, we may want to run out a second edition so that you can really take advantage of the traffic that your book gets. So that is that is how I identified my avatar. I looked back and I said, who was I five years ago? What advice did I need? What information would have made my growth faster, easier, better? And who are the people who are typically coming to me and asking for advice and what advice am I giving them? And where do those two overlap in that Zen diagram? Venn diagram. In the Venn diagram, and where that little sweet spot is, that is who I'm going to target. It's very, very specific. In fact, my avatar has a name. We call her Mary. And my business partner spent weeks developing Mary. We know everything about Mary. We know how, how long her book is. It is probably 120 to 140 pages. It is very likely 10 chapters. It is a um, nonfiction book on a social cause that she believes in. She doesn't think that she has a story herself to tell. So she's not sure how to market herself. Um, which is ironic because again, when we're looking at avatars and I'm trying to speak to me five years ago, I for forever thought that my ideal client was a guy. Not. The male brain tends to think it knows everything and is not seeking guidance or advice and is just going to go and do its own thing. I heard it here first, ladies. Guys don't know everything. We know everything. Yeah, yeah. No, we, we, we don't know everything. We think we do, but we don't. But, uh, but typically, the people who are coming and asking me for advice were all female. They're uh, 30 to 55 with a very socially driven uh, message or mission. So, like, I know who Mary is. I know how much she makes. Mary makes a about one hundred and twenty to one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, you know, and typically in, in some form of self-employed or or own businessship, like she's she's running some kind of business, whether that's small or drawing a salary from a larger uh, endeavor. We know where she we know where she lives. We know what her house looks like. We know how many kids she has. Uh, you know, right down to the pets. Like we know our avatar. And when we got really really clear about that, it's amazing how quickly um my free facebook group started to grow i've seen it i've i personally welcome people into my facebook group so I, anybody who joins my free facebook group i send them a video saying thank you because first of all i know how many facebook groups are out there and i know how many of them we join and then never engage with ever again and you're just one more person on some platform that's trying to sell you something in this free facebook group and i hate that so i I made a promise that I was not going to do that. So anybody who joins my free Facebook group gets a free, you know, it's free because why wouldn't it be? I just send them a video and I'm like, Hey, thank you for joining. I really appreciate it. Come introduce yourself. Right. And for the first five months that we had the Facebook group, that was easy because we'd get like a member a week, <laughs> maybe two, maybe three, but I'm having to do eight to 10 videos a day. Now it's really, really tiring, but I will not, stop doing it because I think it's important that I have that face-to-face -face interaction with somebody initially, that they understand that I'm invested in their growth, that this is not 
your typical Facebook group, that I'm not interested in selling them things. Will I eventually try to sell them things in the group? Absolutely. Of course I'm going to, because they're an active audience, but that is not the goal of the group. The group is not to gain revenue. The goal is to find growth-minded individuals who want to really er learn their craft, hone public speaking, find other people's platforms to be on so that they can grow their messaging. That's my goal. And I'm just going to continue to give people that. If they want to work with me one-on-one, absolutely, I'm going to monetize that. I would be a ridiculous business person if I didn't. But it's not, again, the intent of why I bring them in. It's a byproduct of developing the relationship with them once they're in. And I think that's really the key differentiator between what I do. And I think when you look at really smart businesses, the businesses that succeed, that's usually their attitude. How can we be of service? How do we solve a problem? How do we solve a need? And the more that they can do that, the more of that relationship that they can build, the more revenue they're going to generate in the long run because of the relationship that they've built and the value that they've provided. They're not going to get revenue and then build a relationship and provide value. They're going to provide value, develop a relationship, and then grow revenue. The revenue comes third. I like that. Because um, again, people will find you more likable if you're able to engage with them besides just a work thing, right? Because there's people who go to work and they're like, oh, it's that person. And just during work, they tolerate. Outside of that, they're like, no engagement, zero interest. doesn't help you to be associated with that person. So the fact that there is, you know, this resource that people who do have an interest can find I believe it's very helpful. So I, I do appreciate you uh, letting us know. Obviously, we could plug it in at the at the end of, this, of uh, the recording, which we're kind of heading up, but I think we have time for one or two more questions. So we talked about your avatar and who this, you know, fictional Mary person is and how she is utilized to uh, engage who your customers are. Now, here's, a pro- here's probably a little bit harder of a question how do you engage an audience, right? Because that's always a tough one. People are like, well, what if they just don't want to hear me? That, that's always a valid response. But what what can a, a person do to really capture an audience? Well, so first of all, quit trying to speak to an audience. That's the first way to have everybody tune out because you're trying to speak to everybody. And if you're trying to serve everyone, you're serving no one. So the first thing is, is to speak to one person. Right. It's the same when I go to the networking thing and I say, who here identifies with these things? Come chat with me here. It's so I get so many more people who come to chat with me than I would if I was like, I'm a public speaker coach. And if you need help public speaking, come talk to me over here. That doesn't serve it. So when I'm talking uh, in that initial introduction and I'm saying who here, all I'm doing is thinking, how do I feel right now about this situation, about the thing that I wish that I could solve for me, right? I'm speaking to my experience. I hate networking events. I don't feel comfortable in them. I didn't know what to say for the longest time. It took me a long time to figure out how to properly and effectively go to a networking event and make it actually worth my while. And so surely there's somebody else who's struggling with that, right? particularly a networking event like that. Like it's, it really is an ideal audience for me when you hone it down because 90% of the people there probably feel that way. And like I said, when I speak to that pain point, it's amazing how many people come. So, but all I'm doing, I'm speaking to one person and that person is actually me. So if you want to really engage your audience, the first thing is, is figure out that one person, right? If you could give one message 
to one person. What is that one message you could give to one person? And you speak that. Because it may only be that one person in that audience, but that person is going to be fully engaged and you are going to serve them to your fullest ability. But if that one person is in the audience, there's very likely that there's a shared commonality with that one person, with everybody who's in attendance. And so you start to speak to that one thing. And when you can do that, your audience is going to be engaged. The other, the, the super, super, you know, key secret of the pros, if you've been given 45 minutes to talk, you don't have to talk for 45 minutes. If you've been given 10 minutes to give a presentation, you shouldn't be speaking for the full 10 minutes. That, that is not an engaged conversation. There's a really interesting statistic that I read. I don't know what the source is or how valid it is, but it's one of those things when you t- Google public speaking uh, statistics, it's one of the ones that popped up and, and, and really got my attention. And the statistic said that if you're having a dialogue with an audience, the engagement is 92% in that you are, you are actively soliciting information from them and then speaking to it, uh, the engagement's 92%. If you're just giving a monologue in that you're just speaking to them and you speak and you speak and you speak and you speak and they're expected to sit there and listen, the engagement goes down to 78%. And I would argue that that statistic is generous. I think that's uh, showing polite um, uh, involvement in that. I don't know that they're engaged in that, right? So when you bear that in mind, one of the first things to do, if you really want to engage your audience, ask them to participate in the talk. Make sure that you are soliciting information from them. Right right down to that networking thing. The first thing I did was I asked a question to qualify. Who here feels this way? Who has experienced this thing? Show me like, and if now I know who I'm talking to because there's going to be people who raised their hands and going to be people who didn't. So now I, I can instantaneously exclude these ones. They don't care what I have to say. They may find interest later on in what I have to say, but I'm going to speak to the people who can constantly are saying, this is it. So now I'm engaged with you. Let's have this conversation. Now, what was your experience? Now I can get some qualifying information back. Now I can speak to that. Does anybody have any questions? Great. That's a great way to check in and have a pulse check with your audience to make sure that the information that you're giving is being received the way that it needs to be. Because remember, communication is a two-way street and there's the, the broadcast and the reception. And just because you broadcast this signal doesn't mean it was received over here properly. So let's broadcast and receive. Let's broadcast and receive and always being checking in. So if you're just talking, you don't have the chance to do that check-in. So ask some of those qualifying questions, get some of it back. So that that way, if somebody is reiterating back correctly, it reinforces your message. And you say, yes, that's exactly right. Because if they've received it incorrectly, that gives you your chance to do a correction. You say, well, Yes, I understand where you're coming from with that, but what I really mean by that is this, and now it gives you that chance to clarify your message so that further down the road, you're not misquoted or somebody didn't say, you know, Dark Void said this back in April of 2022, and you're like, but that that isn't what I meant by that. No, 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 no. So now that gives you your chance to to proactively address and correct any misunderstandings or misinterpretations of the things that you're saying. The other secret trick is allow the audience to engage 
with the audience and reinforce your message. So you, you look at the really, really good public speakers. One of the things they all do, all of them will say, turn to a partner and share what you, what you learned in the last five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. They all do it. And the reason they all do it is because it is one of the most effective ways to break up the monotony of what you're saying, have your message reinforced by another human being, which instantly adds more credibility to it. And if they're both sharing, that message is reinforced not once, but twice, because you've said it, and now this is, it's reinforced once over here, reinforced again over here. And then if you do that bubble up thing, that gives you that chance to do that, that check-in, that, that uh, validation that the information has been passed correctly. And when you're doing that, that's reinforcing it a third time. And typically that's how many times things need to be reinforced before the message is received, right? There's some, some statistics that say it needs to be done as many as 12 times. People need to hear a message 12 times before it's heard. So when you learn something the first time, you only retain about 80% of that information. And then give it a day, you already lose about 40% of what you learn. So you're down yeah. to roughly 60% of what you understood. Now, that statistic gets a lot, lot lower the longer you go without learning something. Now, if you go and relearn it again, you'll jump back up to the 85 mark and still be able to comprehend a little bit more. So that's why the science behind studying and repetition is the more you are exposed to it, the better your brain adapts and remembers it. So that's that's where that statistic comes from. Now, yeah. mind, mind you, that doesn't tie well to like, you know, bad habits, but honestly, that's the same process. You do something wrong and you keep doing it wrong, you're going to end up doing it wrong for the rest of your life until you learn to do it right and practice that discipline. Yeah. So if you want to engage your audience, engage your audience and then have your audience engage your audience. That will keep, that'll keep it fresh. That'll keep it lively. It, as you pointed out, it helps reinforce that message. It forces you to recall information. Right. And it's that active recall that then starts to solidify some of these learnings. As you pointed out, and the other thing is too, they what what is that old adage? They only remember the first and the last thing that you said. You know, there are studies that validate that. So if you break up your talk, if you again have 10 minute talk, but you have your audience check in with them twice over the talk, instead of remembering the first and the last thing, and that's only two things, now they remember the first and the last thing before the break, and then they remember the first and the last thing after that break. Now you've had four learning opportunities instead of just two opportunities. And, and the more you can do that throughout the course of a talk, the more exponential that grows. So if you are able to, if you like for me, I'm giving a 45 minute keynote, I'm breaking every five to 10 minutes. There are at least four breaks, which means that there's a beginning and an end and then four other beginnings and ends. That's 10 learning opportunities where people can sink in and opportunities for them because the brain can only process so much for them to start reinforcing those messages, writing them down and re agreeing with each other and supporting each other's messages or learning, right? The other thing is too, two people will not necessarily hear the same thing. So one person will say like, I liked point A and then the other person goes, oh yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> I liked point B and they go, oh yeah, no, I remember that. I, I didn't, oh, but now that you mentioned it, now it's an important thing to me. And it's that that cross-pollination that really, really helps drive a message home and keep your audience engaged. Plus, physically getting up and down out of a seat will help reset the brain so that they can stay actively a uh, participant within the presentation you're giving. And so I know we're catching up to our time here, so I'm just going to have one more question. And it's, I want to say it's controversial, but it's, it's something that 
has put me in my thought process before. Do you think that comedians are good public speakers? I think comedians are the best public speakers. Comedians are, if, if I could pick a vocation, period, that is the hardest job to do, period, comedian, stand-up comedian, hardest job on the planet. And I don't care about what the crab fishermen up in Alaska or the miners up at Divik in the Northern Circle uh, Antarctic researchers, like, forget you people. You have tough conditions to do your job in, but you are well compensated financially in order to do that. A comedian has a job, single job. Now, a public speaker, I come out onto a stage and I say, I give a presentation. I can make you laugh. I can make you cry. I can make you think, right? You don't know what you're going to get out of my presentation until the end of the presentation. And if I fail at, at achieving my goal, my goal for that presentation, you as an audience member may not even know it because you don't know what the expectation is. And if I've given you even just one bit of, of, of advice that, that gives you something to think of, I've at least accomplished something. Stand-up comedian has one job. Make me laugh. Make me laugh, puppet boy. Come on dance for me <laughs> right that is that is their sole job and sometimes they write jokes that land and sometimes they write jokes that don't and part of the process of getting good at stand-up is actively rehearsing material going to these clubs over and over and over again and telling the joke until you get it right and then learning how to retell that joke over and over and over again. But then at some point, somebody's seen that set. So now you got to come up with new material because you've already told that joke. Tell a new joke, puppet boy. Dance. <laughs> and if you don't get the laugh, you what? Suck. But do you? No, you've told all these other jokes that made people laugh. But the one that didn't land, now you suck? No. And on top of it, how much money do comedians make? The answer, none money. They get paid in beer and exposure. And I don't care who you are that doesn't pay the rent until they get really, really, really good and only a fraction of them headline. And that's they've already got the odds that an actor has, but at least an actor can go out for different roles. And somebody tells the actor what to say. So a stand-up comedian is hands down, in my opinion, the hardest job because not only are you doing it purely out of love because there's no financial compensation half the time the audience doesn't even like you and it's the one place like if as a, as a, normally i would give this advice to somebody who wants to be a public speaker i would say the audience is on your side they want to see you succeed they want you to they wouldn't show up at your event if they didn't want to be informed somehow they just wouldn't come the exception to that is a stand-up comedian club because 80% of the people there want to see you succeed. But there's this one-fifth amount of sadistic personalities within our culture who will go to it actively wanting to heckle the people. They want them to fail so that they can feel validated in themselves that they are putting down this human being. Why? I would never be a stand-up comic. You couldn't pay me enough. I don't have the talent or the resiliency to do it. And my hat off to comedians because you are doing the hardest job on the planet. And I have nothing but respect and admiration for you as you do it.
Not to mention there's the active hazard of Will Smith just coming out of nowhere and just killing him. <laughs> yeah. Poor guys. Well, and that's the worst part, too. You can't see the hazard coming at you because you're you're lit. So you have a darkened audience and all of a sudden glass in your face. Like, no, no. Hardest hardest job on the planet. I'm, I, I, do, I do sympathize with that. And I'm pretty sure if Z were here, he'd be all over that same point. Um, the man thinks he's funny. We don't tell him he's not. Can't have him thinking that. Um, you know, got to motivate him a little bit, push him a little bit. And you know, <laughs> he, he has his moments. So I'm like, yeah, just keep trying, man. Don't worry. Don't quit your day job. Though. Yeah. So, well, yeah, no, no, nothing but respect for the grind. I know I, I great friend of mine, Drew Howard is one of the funniest comedians I've ever met in my entire life. And nobody knows him because it's a, it's a cutthroat business, especially now. Like he couldn't, he hasn't even been able to do a set in two years because all the clubs have been closed. Like, I, oh, I just, it's a hard job. Hats off to the comedians out there. You make us laugh even when we want to cry. So, all right, ladies and gentlemen, this is the end of our episode for today. Today, we have Tyler. Any last remarks, Tyler? No, but if uh, there's anything on your heart that you feel you want to talk about, get it out there. The thing you're afraid to say is very likely what your audience needs to hear. And I promise you, if you're listening to this, you have a story to tell. So go out and tell it. Thank you.